morning, Village Church. My name is Sean. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, on its face, this passage at the beginning of Acts 6 might seem like a bit of a detour from the overall context. Last week, we saw the apostles being persecuted and beaten for preaching about Jesus. In the next section of Acts, we're going to see the first martyr killed for his faith in Christ. And sandwiched in between, we have this little account about leaders being appointed to deal with this problem of widows being neglected in the church. So it seems at first like a strange fit. But when we dig down into the specifics and look at it, especially in context, we'll see that the story is directly related to the overall story that Luke is weaving and intertwined with this narrative that the word of God is advancing and nothing is going to stop it. And there's a lot to say to us today, I think, as well, about how to pro wisely prioritize the gospel as we navigate conflict within the church. So what's this story about? Well, we have a complaint that's raised. The complaint is by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. And the complaint is this. The Hellenist widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of either food or money for food. At the root of this complaint is a deep-rooted cultural conflict. It's found its way into the church. The Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, and most of them likely were born to Jewish parents outside of the land of Israel in foreign countries, but now find themselves living in Israel, in Jerusalem. The Hebrews, on the other hand, are essentially locals. They're insiders. They're also Jews, but they spoke the, the native language, the local language of Aramaic. Uh, and historically, a lot of Hebrews tended to view the Hellenists as sort of second-class Jews. So between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, you have a clash of languages, you have a clash of customs, clash of identities. It's insiders versus outsiders, majority versus minority, and even privileged versus unprivileged. So when both the Hebrews and the Hellenists find themselves rubbing elbows in the church, apparently these old conflicts kind of die hard. So we see this conflict reflected in the complaint that's raised. Verse 1 says, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. First thing to note about this complaint is that it's centered upon a real need. The reality is that widows in that culture were very needy people. They were sort of the prototype of someone who's in need. It makes sense. When a woman loses her husband at that time, there's no government safety net to take care of her. There's no food stamps. There's no Medicare. Nothing like that. She's vulnerable at a number of levels. She's vulnerable to being taken advantage of. She's even vulnerable to starving to death. And that's why James says the way that those in the church treat widows is a good indication of whether their faith is real or not. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The second thing to note, though, is that there's a sinful edge to this complaint. In the ESV, it's described simply as a complaint, which I think sounds a little bit neutral to our ears, but the Greek word there is also translated as grumbling or murmuring. It's used a number of times in the Greek Old Testament 
to describe how the nation of Israel grumbled and complained against God in the wilderness and incurred his wrath because of it. Numbers 11 says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So this isn't just someone coming to the leaders and saying, ah, you know, respectfully, there's this group of widows over here that you might have been neglecting. I think the best understanding of the text is that this complaint is going on behind the scenes. There's sort of a grumbling and a complaining and murmuring um, where the Hellenists are saying, these, these Hebrew leaders, they don't care about us. They don't care about our people. They're basically accusing them of showing favoritism. So how did the leaders respond when this complaint comes to light? Look at verses two to four. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The 12 apostles who are the main leaders of the church at this time, they hear about this complaint and they gather everybody together and they rebuke the people. They say, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. They essentially say, you're asking us to abandon preaching. And they compare that to serving tables. Now, I wanna acknowledge, this sounds a little bit arrogant Sounds dismissive. I can only imagine the firestorm of criticism this would be, this would take online today. This is abusive leadership. This is toxic leadership. The church I grew up in, the path for a young man who wanted to become a leader in the church, it was a non-negotiable. You had to go and, and clean bathrooms. That was your job for a period of time while they were being trained. The point of that was to emphasize that leadership in the church is about serving people. It's not about lording authority over people. This seems to be the opposite. Like the apostles are saying, they're too important to serve the widows. They're too important to wait on tables. Like they're denigrating even the role of serving the widows here. Now I wanna show you that that is not the case. That's not what's going on here. The apostles' response is first and foremost about recognizing priorities, especially in the context of what's happening. And second, it's about the role that wise, godly leadership in the church plays in keeping these priorities in order. So let's talk about gospel priorities. The apostles' response first reflects the recognition that there was a higher priority for them than even getting down into the weeds of this complaint, even though the complaint was centered around on an area of real need. In verse two, they recognized that dealing with the complaint threatened to interfere with their role in preaching the word. And in verse four, they say, no, we're not gonna get pulled aside to that. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, though, doesn't that sound a little off-putting? Oh, you just wanna preach, you just wanna pray, be spiritual. You don't wanna get involved with people and their problems. You know, sit in your ivory tower and be so spiritually minded that you're no earthly good. I can hear the accusations today. You guys just wanna quote unquote, 
preach the gospel and ignore the struggles that these women are going through. Don't give me that preach the gospel stuff. What you really need to do is elevate these women's voices. What you need to do is address the patriarchal system here and underlying disparities that led to vulnerability in the first place. Everybody agrees the gospel, all right? What we need to do is put money in their pockets. These are the kinds of arguments you hear today. These are not uncommon from professing Christians about how the church should address all kinds of societal ills. If the proposed answer involves preaching the gospel, that's a cop-out at best and part of the problem at worst. Well, Luke gives us important clues from the context about what's really at stake here, why this gospel prioritization is actually a good thing. So first, let's consider how this story fits with the broader context of the book of Acts. That context is this. The word of God is alive and on the move, and now opposition is coming against it. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus is taken up into heaven. He tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit is going to come. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and Peter stands up and preaches, and 3,000 people are saved like that. What Jesus said would happen is happening, and the church suddenly is alive and thriving, growing as the word spreads. And in chapter 3, Luke starts laying out for us a series of events where opposition comes against the church. Opposition comes especially against preaching the word. Peter and John, after miraculously healing the man lame from birth, they're dragged before the religious leaders. They're commanded in Acts 14 not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And the believers respond by praying, asking for power to speak his word with boldness. God answers by filling them with the Holy Spirit it says in Acts 4.31, so that they spoke the words of God boldly. Last week, Pastor Josh took us through chapter 5. We saw renewed opposition from the religious leaders. But whether by jailing the apostles, threatening them, beating them, nothing could stop the word of God. The leaders are powerless to oppose the apostles. Verse 42 says, and every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, this short story in chapter 6 about the Hellenist widow conflict picks right up with a continuation of these same themes. The word of God is advancing, and no kind of opposition is going to stop it. Verse 1, Luke sets the stage for the story by saying this happened in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. The church is growing. Day by day, more people are hearing the good news about Jesus, and they're believing and being saved and drawn into the church. So when the apostles hear about this complaint that, arise, that arises, they see it for what it is. It's a different kind of opposition. Instead of a direct opposition from outside where people are threatening them, don't preach. It's an indirect opposition from inside. The threat, the, the threat they respond to is the threat that they would be distracted from preaching the word of God. Now, the pastors of Village Church have seen this in action over the years. Recently, 
It was a time where an issue was sort of brewing behind the scenes and eventually surfaced in a complaint that involved a lot of us spending a lot of time. It sort of sucked the, a lot of the air out of the room. There's a lot of hours spent in dealing with it. Ultimately, the other pastors had to say to Pastor Matt, who has a primary teaching responsibility here, we need you to step aside and not deal with this directly. The rest of us are gonna focus on this because it was threatening to in interfere with the time he could spend in preparing to preach. We knew that couldn't be allowed to happen. Now, there's just, just an example here, but the apostles recognize this is a real concern. It's so easy for complaints and controversy to distract from the ministry of the word within the church. So instead of getting dragged into dealing with the complaint, the apostles basically say, we need to appoint other leaders to handle this. Look at verses three to six. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now notice the qualifications they look for. Do they say, who's really good at, at serving these widows? You know, who we got that got strong arms, can carry a lot of food around? Or even, who has a real servant's heart? No, they say, choose men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. They're looking for godly, wise men with a good reputation who can lead the church in these things. I think the reason those are the qualifications is clear. Godly wisdom will be required to wrestle with this, to navigate this. They're need, going to need to both recognize the needs at hand and to wisely navigate the cultural differences that are at play. This idea that godly wisdom must govern even the way we show mercy in the face of a real need, you can see it in Paul's instructions about how to deal with widows in 1 Timothy 5. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hopes on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul's instructions show that there's a great deal of wisdom that has to be exercised even when you're providing for the needs of widows. Provide for widows who are really needed, essentially, he's saying, and have demonstrated a godly character. 
But don't enable those who would take advantage of the church's generosity to their own destruction. In the same way, addressing the Hellenist complaint is going to demand the exercise of godly wisdom. To what extent are widows actually being neglected and why? Is there some unrighteous favoritism being shown? Or does the murmuring and grumbling behind the scenes indicate that this is really an issue of bitterness and cultural animosity? We aren't given that level of information from the story, so we don't really know. But we do know that the apostles thought it was important to appoint godly, wise leaders to handle these things without detracting from the most important thing, preaching of the word and advancing the gospel. We can even see the importance of godly wisdom in the list of the men that were chosen. They're officially, essentially, the first to hold the office of deacon in the church, or as one commentator I saw put it, these are sort of archdeacons meant to, you know, lead others in service. Stephen, it says, was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was a godly man. And Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. Nicholas is from the Greek city of Antioch. He's a Greek Gentile, even, who converted to Judaism. He's a proselyte. So it appears that he's chosen specifically to bridge this Hellenist-Hebrews divide. He's also the first example of a non-Jew who's a full member of the church and even a leader in the church. So there's wisdom in his selection in particular. If we look at the, what the apostles see as their proper role, they say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's setting a pattern for the primary role of pastors and elders in the church. Their focus is on the ministry of the word and prayer. That involves preaching the word, teaching disciples about everything that Jesus did and taught, what it means to be a follower of Christ, and going out and proclaiming the good news about Jesus to a world that needs to hear it. It also involves a devotion to prayer. The apostles know that their words in and of themselves are powerless to change people. They need the Holy Spirit to be active and to be moving for this word to advance. So they committed themselves to pray while they devoted themselves to the ministry of the word. In verse 7, we see the result of all of this, the vindication, if you will, of the apostles' choice to prioritize the gospel this way. It says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The apostles responded to the Hellenist complaint by prioritizing the word and appointing godly, wise leaders, and their response had an effect. It increased the fruitfulness of the mission, led to more fruitfulness. The word of God increases, the number of disciples multiplied greatly, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. This is an important verse within the overall context of Acts. It sort of puts a cap on everything in the six chapters that has come before it. So I want to look at a few things here. The first is this somewhat odd phrase, the word of God continued to increase. Sure, the number of apostles and disciples begin increases, the, the church grows, those ideas seem straightforward, but what does it mean that the word of God is increasing? The Holy Spirit through Luke is highlighting the centrality of the word, the gospel. The story of Acts unfolds through many brave, awesome, 
actions by Jesus' followers. They go out into the public square. They engage people with the, with the gospel. They even stand boldly before the religious leaders who oppose them. They get beaten, thrown in jail. But through it all, the word is acting. The word is moving. The word is increasing. This is a theme Luke is going to carry forward throughout the book of Acts. Acts 12, 24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19, 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God is prevailing over all kinds of opposition. And that's the highlight, the most important point in this little story. The second thing I want to point out is the end of verse 7. It says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This again is highlighting the victory of the word over all the opposition that has come against it. Who are the main antagonists against the gospel? Who are the main antagonists against the apostles? It's the religious leaders. And here, Luke says, a great many of them turned. They go from opposing the church to being, becoming part of the church. And there's one other noteworthy phrase here. It says the priest became obedient to the faith. What do we obey? We obey commands, right? One of the more common ways that Christians talk about the gospel is as an offer. Maybe you've heard that. It's kind of like God's got a great, great deal for you. It's a lot better than the alternative. I hope you take it. In one sense, I think it's natural to think about the gospel as an offer because we understand that the good news about the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 6.23. It sounds strange or paradoxical to say, I command you to take this gift. But the Bible doesn't talk about the gospel as an offer. God doesn't offer the gospel. He commands that we repent and believe. When Paul preaches in Athens in Acts 17, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. By describing the obedience of the priests, I think Luke is further highlighting the centrality of the word. The word is triumphing over opposition. The word is increasing, and the word is being obeyed. So how might we respond to this passage? I don't know any Hellenist widows in our culture, uh, but are there any cultural conflicts that divide us today? Anything that's made its way into the church Anything that threatens to divide? Of course. I probably don't even need to name them. You can open up your Facebook feed and see Christians wrapped up in cultural conflict left and right. We're fighting over vaccines, fighting over masks, political freedoms, racial conflicts, class conflicts. And don't get me started on Christian Twitter. I can't think of a much more relevant text than this one for navigating these conflicts in our time. We must recognize that our current cultural conflicts also carry this same threat of subverting the emphasis that we should have on the Word of God. In our church, 
we too are susceptible to being distracted from the things that should be our highest priority. We simply must keep these priorities in order. In particular, we must refuse to allow the word of God to be detracted from, distracted by the cultural conflicts of our day. Well, how, we do, how do we do that? It's so easy to get riled up, isn't it? About the things you see on the news or things that you see on social media that appear unjust or unfair, just wrong. It's so easy to divert our attention from reaching our neighbors and friends and family and coworkers that need to hear the gospel, especially when those people end up on the opposite side of one of these issues from us. Then they're in the them category that need to be fought against rather than the people that need to hear about Jesus and be saved. So examine yourselves. What do your actions, the things you think about, the things that you're passionate about, that get you riled up, what do those say about your gospel priorities? Sometimes we need a course correction. That's what this passage was for me. We also must exercise godly wisdom in the way that we pursue ministry. It's not bad to show mercy to widows, obviously, to other needy people in our context. It's not bad to be concerned for fairness, especially within the church. Favoritism in the church is sin that needs to be repented of. James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But our pursuit of mercy, fairness, justice cannot come at the expense of the right priority of the ministry of the word of God. As usual, if we want to see this modeled well, we look to Jesus himself. In Luke 5, Jesus heals the man who was paralyzed when his friends dropped him down through the roof. You remember this story? That's how we recall this story. The ESV headline and header for it is, Jesus heals a paralytic. But look with me at what Jesus does and says in this story. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. What does Jesus prioritize here? He prioritizes this man's greatest need. This is someone who has an obvious, dire, physical need. But Jesus prioritizes his spiritual need. 
He needs his sins forgiven far more than he needs to be healed. When Jesus heals the man, why does he do it? He does it in service of the greater need. He says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'll heal this man. And he healed the man's paralysis so that those who were there would understand who Jesus is and what his authority was. He was addressing their greatest spiritual need as well. And that brings us to our good news statement for this morning. The good news is that because Jesus prioritized our greatest need by dying on the cross for our sins, we can prioritize others' greatest needs by wisely prioritizing the gospel in our time. I want to end on a note of gratitude. We, as the pastors of Village Church, are so grateful for the many deacons and ministry leaders who serve so faithfully week in and week out in this church. Some you see all the time, you may know who they are. Some operate in obscurity behind the scenes, working as for the Lord. But our church has thrived over the years through their and others' efforts. And by God's grace, we will continue to thrive as we pray forward in the roles that God has given us and as we prioritize the word of the Lord together. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we ask that by your spirit, the word would advance in our time, that your word would be prioritized in our church, that we would individually prioritize the gospel in our lives and see ourselves on mission and called into this glorious endeavor, just like the apostles and the disciples were in Acts. We thank you so much for the godly men and women that you've raised up in this church to serve so well and so faithfully. We ask that you would raise up godly leaders in the years to come that would exercise wisdom, rightly prioritizing the word of God as we serve others, as we seek to take your word and internalize it and then display the life of Jesus to those around us. We thank you. We praise you for all that you have done. We praise you for all that you are doing and all that you will do in this church. Lord, help us to, to really believe what you say and to want to seek after the things that you want. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.